Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing With Fishes podcast, episode 177, 178, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been a long, long week and it's only Tuesday. Um, <laughs> so how's it going, Dale? Thanks for joining us. It's going us great. Today. Thank you. Yeah, it's going great. So today we have uh, lawyer Dale Hunt. Um, he's uh, been with us once or twice before. Actually, maybe two or three times before, now that I actually think about it. Uh, thanks Twice. to Beth. Um, yeah. Beth Schechter, she's a super awesome person, does a lot of great stuff for the, the cannabis community out there. And um, uh, we were, you know, been talking, there's a lot of people that are kind of uh, in a lot of fear over what's happening with the hemp industry and what's going on with the patent stuff in the realm of cannabis. And uh, especially with it kind of being closer to the year's end, there's been a lot of change in this realm this year. So we thought, you know, what better time to, to get a, you know, a, a lawyer on there that actually knows what he's talking about and uh, kind of help get some education into the realm of, uh, of the cannabis space on especially the, the hemp stuff, because there's so much crazy things I've heard. And um, I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and I'm real excited to hear uh, what you have to say. And then you have a bunch of really great articles you've been putting out lately, some great stuff on cannabis patents. And um uh, especially about how people can, you know, help out by posting their evidence and help out by by posting some of these more ludicrous patents and making them known so that people can challenge them and yeah and um, you know have have a way to help fight back collectively, not just uh, you know you know trying to donate somewhere, but actually being able to to help fight things themselves. So thanks for coming on. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I've had a lot of fun on your prior podcasts that I've been part of, so. Um... Uh, it was easy to say yes to this. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the new hemp bill that's coming down and maybe some of the changes in the real world that it's actually going to mean because there's a lot of uh, crazy information out there. Yeah, okay. I'm going to start by a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, I'm a lawyer, so why not, right? Um, usually when I'm talking to on podcasts or meetings or whatever, I'm talking about things I've been doing for decades or at least many years and things that, um, that I know like really, really well. This particular, um, these new rules for hemp um, testing and certification and so on just came out October 29th. And so they're really new. Um, if you look at all the materials that are out there about it, it and you put it into a normal font, it, it comes up to, you know, a couple hundred pages or more of content. So I want to talk about this stuff to help people understand it, but don't rely on everything I say as the last word because, you know, I did a lot of homework on this just in the last couple of days, but there's a lot to digest, a lot to still interpret, um, but I think I can help to make some sense of it. And, um, if it's okay with everybody, I'd like to just take a couple minutes and share something I learned in law school. I took a class called administrative law and it's all about something called the Administrative Procedures Act. So we all know that Congress makes laws. And one of the things that Congress does when it makes a law is it sometimes either establishes a new agency like back when they established the USDA or the DEA or whatever. And for an existing agency, they, write, they will make a law to say, all right, we're going to change the way you operate, or we're going to give you some new responsibilities, or we're going to give you a new mandate, and you figure it out. 
Congress is never going to get down to the level of detail of saying, all right, this is how you should sample a hemp field, and this is what you should test for, and this is your confidence interval and all that stuff. So instead, they make industrial hemp legal, they put a few conditions on it, and they instruct the, uh, the USDA to kind of take it from there. So how do, and, and we know that, you know, people make jokes about this, but in the United States, um, there are a lot of bureaucracies. There are a lot of different agencies. These are called administrative agencies because they, they um, are supervised by the administrative, they're, they're, they're agencies that administer the carry out functions. And um, the, the United States Patent Office is one of them. The USDA is one, the DEA, the FBI, they're all administrative agencies. And so, and they make their rules. And I'm not, I want to, is FBI an administrative agency? Maybe, but certainly the USDA is and the USPTO is, and that's what re what's relevant here. Um, so when an agency um, figures out how they're going to take an act of Congress and make it work, they do something that is called rulemaking. And that's what this is. That's what came out on October 29th. And the procedure, this is governed, the Administrative Procedures Act tells agencies how they have to do this. So typically when an agency makes rules, they have to um, seek public comment if there's time. And then they make some, some rules and uh, based upon the, the public comment. Sometimes they have to make some rules in a hurry and they will make interim rules subject to public comment. And that's exactly what we have here. So. What was issued on October 29th was a set of interim rules about the regulation of, of hemp, the testing and regulation of hemp and certification of it as, as being legitimate within the law. And um, once they make those, so in this case, they made the interim rules. And um, now that the rules are out, there's a 60-day comment period. So I'll talk about the rules in a minute, but what just to kind of think about how this is, how this is working these interim rules will be effective for two years. They'll be effective until the end of 2021. And then based upon the public comments that come out in the next 60 days up until the end of this year, they will have an opportunity to think, to, to kind of rethink some of their rules and say, okay, this wasn't very, this didn't make a lot of sense. This had all these gaps in it. This was just stupid, whatever. And they'll take all the public comments into account. Some of them they'll, they'll ignore, but others they will actually take into account and they'll issue better rules, more permanent rules. Well, we'll see if they're better, right? But they will issue more permanent rules that will be effective at the end of this two-year interim period. So that's kind of the way it works that, that you know, Congress makes a law, the um, agencies make rules. And some people have heard of the US code. That's, the, that's the, the, all of the laws passed by Congress. And then some, you may have heard of the, the um, uh, code of uh, federal regulations. CFR. And that is the, those are the rules that different agencies make. So, you know, for every page of U.S. code, there's probably, you know, 10 or 100 pages of, of regulations, because that's really how these agencies function. So in this case, um, I'd say the high points of this, and um, I'll cover, cover a few high points, and then, and then, you know, we can talk about any questions or whatever. The high points are, first of all, that States and Indian tribes can make their own, they can, they can take it upon themselves to do their own testing and do their own regulation of this, but the testing and regulation has to meet guidelines that are already set by the USDA. Um, and so the USDA has said, 
all right, you states, if you and you Indian tribes, if you want to, to govern this yourselves, then here, here are the things that you have to at least do these things at a minimum. And any states or Indian tribes that don't um, pass these their own programs, that don't institute their own programs, will be subject to the to the USDA program instead. So the USDA is kind of setting out this national program, but they're definitely allowing that localities can regulate it themselves. Now, why would they want to? They might want to make it more accessible. They might want to make it more responsive, more practical, more, and they might want to charge things. They're probably going to want to charge state fees instead of instead of mass, missing that opportunity. Um, but they they can't just make any rules they want. They have to comply with the USDA guidelines. But the USDA is as apparently, according to their rules, they're happy to kind of take hands off and let the states and the tribes do this wherever they will, and then the USDA will fill the gaps. So um, a few of the, uh, I'd say that the major regulations, one is that there has to be a sampling of um, a representative, there has to be some kind of approach for representative sampling of a harvest or of a crop. Okay, well, I guess probably the most important thing is they're requiring that, this, that the samples be taken within 15 days of harvest. A lot of people are upset about that. They're saying that's not practical or it's not even fair. Um, people are advocating for you know 20 or 30 or 45 days before harvest. But this rule has been that the sampling has to occur within 15 days of harvest. And if it's harvested more than 15 days after that sampling is, has occurred, then it's not valid. And then the testing isn't valid. Um, so you, the, uh, a, a, an authorized tester comes into the field, takes a sample, bags it up, takes it back to the lab for testing. But here's another thing that's tricky about it is that the testing has to be done by a DEA certified lab. And um, I don't know how serious a problem this is, but some people are saying that already is a huge problem because if there's not a DEA certified lab in my state, I have to move this across state lines to get it tested and then it tests hot. And then not only do I have hot product on my hands, but I've also been party to moving this across state lines. And I, at least in theory, would be, um, would be at risk of, of you know, interstate commerce of a controlled substance. So that's one thing I'm sure there's gonna be a ton of comments on. Um, is, but I also think that there will be uh, one thing I tried to research and I couldn't figure out is how hard is it for a lab to become DEA certified? And um, are we going to see a lot of states where there are going to be a lot of labs that quickly become DEA certified just because there's a lot of business available to them if they do this? Or is it going to be a different kind of giant pain that takes two years to work out before a lab can even be, be DEA certified? Are we going to see kind of an impossibility that you got to get tested but don't move your hot stuff across state lines. So that could be a serious problem. Um, there are lots of other things to talk about, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there just in case I've already said something that makes you want to ask a question. Well, you know, and the other thing too is, you know, what about international producers, not only for, for cannabis, but even just for fiber hemp that need to clear that 0.3%. Say if I have a couple tons of fiber hemp that I just need to have for textiles or something like that, that's in a raw form that's being processed by, by U.S. producers, you know, and there's other countries that now they're, they're doing, you know, raw stuff and then shipping that into the United States for U.S. people to, to, to do refining on. 
how are they are they able to get a DEA certified lab in another country? Is that something they're even going to, to entertain, or are they going to be able to import send that in? in you know, and then how does that work? Because now you're sending something internationally, which would go back into the whole crossing state lines thing, except it's even worse, right? So it gets uh, it gets into an even squirrelier kind of uh, scenario. Yeah, it's it's. I would say it's very safe to 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 classify this as a, as a situation where these these rules they might have been done with with good intentions and you know probably just the USDA is probably trying to do its job as Congress told them to according to the Administrative Procedures Act but there are so many issues like that that aren't really squarely addressed in these rules that uh, the the public comment period is probably going to be a real um, a real riot in terms of not riot like fun, but riot like what the hell? What did you do here? And so I think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of very uh, um, I would say emphatic comments made, and a lot of a lot of need for fixing this. And what's interesting to me is we're going to have to live with these rules for two years before the comments are taken into account to issue a final rule. Now maybe it'll be so bad that they'll move faster than that, but they're they're not committed to moving faster. And one thing I noticed, and again, don't trust anything I say is authoritative because I haven't, I haven't memorized all of the pages of things that I've read and I could, you know, there's something I could leave out. But um, I didn't see, there was one passage I saw that said, we're not commenting here on, on export guidelines. And I didn't see even anything, even mentioning imports. Um, it may be that U.S. Congress, U.S. regulatory bodies like, or U.S. Um, administrative agencies like the USDA are, are taking the position, hey, let's worry about our own states and our own, our own economy first and imports, that's, that's for another day. I don't know. But that the, is only other, the only other writing I've seen from the U.S. government, and if anyone wants to chime in and chat and, and correct me, the only other writing I have seen about import-export was do you remember a couple of years ago, but under the um, uh, Keebler Elf guy uh, when he was AG? Um, anyways, uh, they did that DEA research program application, and at the very end of that DEA research application, if you applied and, and donated, what was it, two percent or three percent of your total production per year to DEA research, um, they would. Um, uh, you would be moved to the first of the line for import export, which I thought was interesting because it was the only other time I've seen anything in any rating with US law for import export, aside from the GW Pharma stuff that's going on, obviously. Yeah, and I have to admit, I, I didn't even see that. So this, I think import export, there's certainly, that's a huge thing. I mean, there's so much, so much of our economy is tied with other countries in general. And, um, to completely leave that out of the conversation is, it really narrows the scope of the conversation and how useful the, the rules are, et cetera. Oh, cool, hi, Kitty. Um, but uh, uh, I think this one, as far as I, I didn't notice anything about, about imports. Um, if there's like, like you said, if someone did see something, bring it on. Um, we're not necessarily the final word here. This is just kind of a, um, running description of what we what we know so far from having gotten into this but so, yeah so go ahead clarify something that you had said earlier is that so it's the law that that proposal is going to be the law of the land for two years and they are not going to change it 
or at January, um, they might announce a couple of amendments or this is just set in stone now for the next two years. They are committed to issuing final rules um, to, to be effective um, two years from now. I guess, let's see, that would be the beginning of 2022. Now, I don't think that precludes them from issuing rules sooner if they find out that this entire thing is such a, a mess that it leaves too many issues unaddressed. So, um, but, you know, federal agencies and federal rules are, are big, complicated things. <laughs> I just got mooned by a cat. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a cat guy. I like that. Um, so anyway, it, it, it may happen sooner than that, but it, it, it's not, they're, they're committed to having, to, to, to having final rules effective two years from now. So we may be stuck with these rules for two years. Yeah, that would, that would not be good. Um, I know. And what was interesting was, so I was reading up on this and we had talked a little bit about this in a previous episode, but I wanted to touch on it because I thought it was very well researched. Um, Oregon, uh, Oregon CBD seeds had a really interesting um, uh, thing that they pulled up about both the decarboxylation, but also the where the 0.3% came from. It came from young, vigorous leaves of relatively mature plants as guided, as a guide to discriminating two classes of plants. And that's from the original 1976 ruling. And that's where that number comes from. So it came, it was, that was leaf, leaf measurements? Yes, yes, they actually, and I'll, I'll make sure I post the link to this in the description of the, the video for everybody. Um, I'll throw it in chat here now temporarily, but uh, it's actually from this this old, old, old uh, Jimmy Carter era or whoever it was, I don't know what year 76, I'm assuming that's Carter. Almost 76 old. would have been, yeah, I think that was Carter, yeah. Um, so that, that's where that comes Seven. from. And it actually had nothing to do with buds. It was from young, vigor, quoting it now, young, vigorous leaves of relatively mature plants as a guide to discriminating two classes of plants. Wow, so they're testing leaves and now they're asking us to test flowers. And I guess it's in segment 76, that would have been the end of the Ford administration. Because mm -hmm. Carter was in 76 and started his, his administration in 77. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a long time ago. And don't people wish they could test leaves now, young, vigorous leaves now instead of flower? Right. That would be a totally different situation. Oh yeah, he used them with the hash plants and they're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Well. I'll talk a little bit about this, this testing. I've heard things, I've seen things on online um, commentary that, uh, that I didn't see borne out in my analysis of this, so, or in my review of it. I saw people complaining about the fact that they're only gonna test the very top level, the, the very highest, um, they're gonna take their, their samples from the very highest placed flower. The actual um, uh, description says the top third of the plant. Um, now, is there gonna be a bias? You know, you're gonna to have to rely on, on the person who's doing your testing to, to um, do that effectively and, and take the whole top third. If they take the whole top third, you're gonna have at least some um, different, potentially different stages of maturity or whatever. Um, but, so that's one thing. I, I, it, the, there are some sampling guidelines that specify um, 
that it should be the the inflorescence from the top third. Um, that's one thing that I think is uh, it, it, that is what it is. Another thing that's really interesting is that you know you can as you do the sampling you can get a, a range. You're always going to get a range of results if you have more than one if you test more than one sample. And it explicitly talks about if the range is like, say, I might be have my, I might have my numbers wrong, but um, if it's, well, let's see, I think they said if it's 0.35 plus or minus 0.06, that's your confidence interval, then the minus 0.06 would be 0.29 or 0 0.029. Um, yeah. And so because even the low end of that range, is within the, the, the legally required or the, the legally permissible limits, it would all be okay. So they do they take into account the middle of the range, but they also look at the variability, the, the, you know, the, the confidence interval from the highest possible that it could be and the lowest possible it could be within that confidence interval. And if the low end of the confidence interval is below 0.03, you're good. Now that's explicit in the, um, either in the analysis guideline, it might even be right in the rules. I know I read that. And I was kind of surprised that they weren't being more strict even than that, but I was glad to see that there's at least a little bit of common sense there. And then you've got a, the sampling has to have 95% um, certainty that your, that your numbers are right, that your confidence interval is right. So there's, there's and they, they provide a, a pretty elaborate formula for, you know, how many samples you need to take based on how many acres, et cetera, to achieve this confidence interval. But um, you know, that's where you're just looking at, at um, fairly standard scientific and sampling and, and data analysis practices. And so um, I, I guess I was glad to see that there was that much detail in it because it means that, that different people are, are going to be less, less likely to be capricious about it, to just be, um, you know, to just do it their own way. I mean, I guess I could favor some farmers, but it would hurt others. Uh, so. Um, that I, I did see that there was there was pretty good clarity about that at least. I think one and it of the looks like they're, they're going to be sampling one. And I, I hope I've got this right. There were tables and tables of, of um, information on this. But if you got one acre, you sample one plant. If you got two acres, you sample two plants. Um, as some as you go more and more acres, bigger acreage. Then it's not one plant per acre. That 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 there's a formula that lets you that lets them start to take fewer than one plant per acre. But it's um, that's that's the guideline for the first. You know, if it's if it's an acre or less, you take one plant. And how they select the plant is also interesting. They they say you've got to walk um, at right angles to the to the rows in which they're planted, and you so you're basically cutting across rows as you're doing this sampling. And it actually kind of explicitly says, don't stay around the outer edges of the plot, of the lot. Um, so that, that was interesting too. But they also have to test each lot separately. And the lot is whatever unit is being sold, um, something like that. So it's, it's the, the, the guidelines are in that way relatively specific. And um, uh, the, there are sampling guidelines and testing guidelines in addition to the, the uh, the uh, interim rules and those there are links to all of that on the USDA website. I can send you those links for you to post um, online if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. 
I think one of the other big concerns people had too is the fact that if you test out at 0.5, you can actually, um, uh, you know, be, be prosecuted for negligence. And, you know, if you have a heat wave, if you have high manganese, if you have, you know, a couple of other particular types of, of cultivation conditions, and especially for field cropping, the, these things can absolutely cause things that would normally test below threshold to, to test over. And, and it's completely ludicrous that these people will be prosecuted for that. That's just crazy. And I know that's a, a big concern and why a lot of people are thinking about switching to CBG, for, for example. Yeah, there, there is some discussion in there about the difference between negligent and negligence and criminal culpability or, or culpable intent. Um, if you test hot that you're below 0.05, then, um, then they will treat that as negligence and it's not prosecutable. But it, yeah, if you come in over 0 0.05, you're at risk. Then they, they are supposed to determine, you know, the likelihood that this was criminally culpable instead of just, you know, a string of bad luck or like weather conditions or something. I think someone, you, you, by then you'd probably be involving attorneys in criminal defense and everything, but you could make the case that this was horticultural rather than criminal. And it's crazy that you have to make that, right? That that's, that's just, that's the thing. We're still so afraid of, of THC that um, we're jumping through all these hoops to, um, to split these hairs and draw these lines. So um, uh, is there any other big uh, takeaways you had from the, uh, from the bill or um, things that you thought? What, what about the decarboxylation part of it? Oh yeah, that's, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I've heard, um, People talk about this. I think people were hoping that they would test just Delta 9 and leave the THCA alone. That was, that was too good to be true. They are taking, they're talking about actual Delta 9 or potential Delta 9. And so you have to factor in the THCA. They have a formula, I think it's 0.877 of the amount of THCA is considered potential Delta 9. That must be a breakdown between how much THCAD converts to delta nine, and how much of it uh, doesn't, or converts to something else. So, but yeah, they, you take the total THC um, plus 0.877 of the of the THCA, and that gets you your potential THC, which is the number that has to come in below point, 0.03. Or it's 0.3. Yeah, 0.3. 0.3, yeah. If it's 0.03, man, I think we're all. Yeah, we'd be screwed. Yeah, we're all we're all out of luck. A lot of people too are talking about how this seems like it's very geared towards moving everything to vat grown, and and you know GMO strains and and I know you would know all about uh, uh, outrageous new strains. So yeah, <laughs> outrageous <laughs> new strains. Yeah, in fact, I um, I answered a couple questions from reporters that were really curious about some patenting activity in the hemp space. And they were wondering why would someone get a plant patent on a hemp cultivar um, if hemp is the kind of thing that's produced in such quantity that people are going to want to plant seeds. And a plant patent only covers clonal propagation. It doesn't even cover seeds. And I did a little speculating because why not, right? Um, I said, well, either these guys didn't even know what they were doing and didn't know what a plant patent covers and what it doesn't, and that it's not going to help them protect seeds, or perhaps this is so, so clearly going to be under whatever horticultural conditions, it's going to stay below 0.3, so it's never going to get too hot, 
that it's actually worth clonal propagation. And I've actually talked to quite a few hemp farmers and hemp seed companies that are saying there's a lot, there's incredible demand for clones because people want that consistency. They don't want to take the chances with the variability of a seed lot. There, it's actually even though you know clones are more expensive to. You got a little disconnect there. He's got a little uh, little web hiccup there. We'll give him. Oh, there we go. Did I disconnect? Maybe I disconnected. All right. Is everybody still alive? I think we're still alive, right? Our uh, Zoom just reset here for us. Yeah, we're still alive. All right, good, 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 good. We'll get Dale back here in a second, and uh, and we'll jump back on. Sorry about that, guys. I don't know what happened. Zoom just decided to uh, take a dump. But um, yeah, it's been a uh, been a crazy long week. Dealing with some family stuff, and um, yeah. Other than that, just working on getting everything ready for for Zimbabwe. There he is. I think we got him back now. Here I am. Right. I'm in the suburbs and my internet died. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, it wasn't just you. Zoom actually totally crashed on my end, too. It was a Zoom issue. Okay. Well, I guess that's, that's good news, maybe. But yeah, I was in the middle of the best answer of the night, of course. <laughs> um, you'll just wonder what I said. No, where did I, where did you lose me? Um, you were talking about uh, patents and how the patents don't matter for seed. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I, I was answering a question from a couple of reporters about why would someone patent, get a plant patent on a hemp cultivar. I looked at the characteristics that were described and it said that it, it, it stayed around 0.2% uh, THC. And so I was speculating with these reporters. I was saying, well, one possibility is these guys don't even know that a plant patent doesn't protect seeds because, you know, there's some lot of weird esoterica in, in plant intellectual property protection. I said, but it's quite possible that instead this is valuable enough, the consistency of performance, if, if that's what it really has, is valuable enough that people are willing to plant their entire fields with clones instead of seeds. Now, that's really costly and inefficient, but it's nowhere near as costly as having, as having to destroy a whole hot crop. And so I think one, th one lesson this gives us is that, and I, I actually have talked with quite a few hemp farms and hemp uh, breeders that are telling me that, yeah, there's still a lot of demand for their seeds, but there's also incredible demand for their clones uh, because people want that consistency. And if you're selling clones, you're getting a lot less variability than if you're selling a, even a stable seed line. Um, and so then the question is, does anybody have genetics that, um, 
that turn out to be so good that um, you're always going to come come in um, below 0.3, even if um, you've got some weird horticultural conditions happening or some some unfavorable weather or soil minerals or whatever. Um, so I, I do think that that this whole situation, as long as it lasts, is going to is going to promote uh, you know, provide a lot of incentive for more plant breeding in the hemp space. And as you noted, it will probably encourage some people to focus on GMOs. Um, I've heard of people just knocking out the THC synthase um, uh, biosynthetic mechanisms in the first place, going all the way down to the genetics to, or to, to, to gene regulation or gene expression to shut down even the ability to make THC. Um, if, you know, and, and it's happened in cotton, it's happened in corn, people, people have problems with GMOs, but something becomes so commoditized and so industrialized that the, the farmers either don't have a choice or they, some particular farmers don't care, the buyers don't care. And I could see hemp going that way. I hope it doesn't, but it, it certainly could, that it would be like, okay, this is going into textiles and plastics and building materials and yeah, CBD. But, um, but we're, gonna, we're just gonna hope that people get over the whole GMO thing like they did with cotton and with corn and with certain other crops. Um, it, you know, it might actually be surprising that it doesn't go that way, but uh, I think in a way, for those of us who really believe in kind of craft cannabis and craft farming and certain, you know, horticultural practices and everything, it'll just further differentiate that part of the, of the industry and, and the community from the commodity market. So that might be, well, I wouldn't say it's a good thing, but it's at least a silver lining on, on what will probably be beyond our control. So, so how can people, uh, you know, do something about plant patents? You talked to, I know you had an interesting article recently about, uh, I know you, you and Kevin McKernan, I love to read your, your posts because you guys post some pretty goofy patents every now and then. There was one the other day for uh, a hemp with the glyphosate resistant gene. It's like, if you're, if you're spraying your plants with glyphosate, you should be beaten. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's, yeah, I mean, that's got all kinds of issues now, especially with the, with the litigation around glyphosate. Um, but yeah, um, I think, well, first of all, we've got a few different problems in the, in the patent space. We've got some overbroad patents that, um, that I'm doing what I can and, and trying to help other people um, mobilize to, uh, if, well, one goal would be to actually demonstrate publicly how these broad patents are overbroad and, and aren't, be, aren't valid and shouldn't be enforced. Um, and if we make enough noise, maybe we'll discourage people from ever trying to enforce them. Um, in other cases, it's, it's putting together a mechanism so that if someone does get sued, we all kind of gather around that, that, uh, that defendant and help them stand up so that they're not all on their own. Um, and then there was something else that you asked about patents that I, oh, I know, I just, I, Kevin and I, I don't think either one of us is ever going to escape the, the, the title of being geeky. So we don't even try. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'll embrace that one. 
Um, yeah, you, so you had a blog post about how people can post their, their data and, and post, um, you know, uh, uh, previous work to help fight some of this stuff. I thought that was real interesting the other day. Yeah, and I, there's one, and, and I've, I've um, been working on a variety of projects lately, and I haven't been as active in my blogging, and I'm trying to fix that. But one of the posts that I wrote needs to be followed up with more specifics. And the post was, you know, um, uh, your information can be somebody else's defense. Your evidence can be someone else's defense. And the, the best example I know is the only current patent that's being litigated in, in the cannabis space. And that is United Cannabis, UCAN against Pure Hemp Collective. And that's being litigated in Colorado. And this is, the, this is a blog I really need to write and get out there, which is the message is that um, uh, if you believe that a patent that would that claims uh, the United Cannabis patent claims um, any liquid formulation that contains a cannabinoid, where the that cannabinoid is at least where the cannabinoids in that formulation are at least ninety five percent of one uh, one thing. Um, to be more specific, one of the claims it is any liquid formulation that has a cannabinoid in it where the, where ninety five percent of the cannabinoid content is THC. Another claim. 95% of the cannabinoid content is CBD. Now, it's really important to understand that this is any liquid formulation. It's not saying it's a, it's a formulation that's 95% that's pure THC or CBD, and that that's the only stuff that's there. No, it's any liquid formulation that has a cannabinoid in it, where now that you're drilling down to just what the cannabinoid content is, that it's you know 19 parts one thing, as opposed to one part or less of everything else. So it's you know 95% one thing and 5% the rest. And so one of the claims is to 95% is to THC, one is to 95% CBD, one is 95%, I think, CBG, CBN, or even a combination of THC plus CBD. So the defendant in this case has, has put into the record quite a bit of evidence of things that predated this patent that are liquids and that are um, uh, essentially pure THC or pure CBD. And um, the, uh, my understanding of the status of this case is, and it's been a little while since I looked into it, but my understanding of the status of this case is that they haven't gotten into the, to the real meat of that evidence yet. There was one early early attempt to get the case thrown out on the basis that what they're claiming is a product of nature. And there was a big argument about, well, okay, the, the natural product, um, is it really a liquid? And the, the, the judge decided, or the judge accepted the argument that it's not really a liquid, it's a soft solid, which th this is how lawyers, you know, this is what it's like when you're in court and working with lawyers. The difference between a liquid and a soft solid, okay, but more importantly, and I think this is why that it was decided in favor of the patent holder in this case, but it was not a final decision. It was just, is this enough to throw this case out? And the judge said, no, this is not enough to throw this case out because the patent owner was able to show that the properties of a liquid, of a real liquid formulation are different from, from the soft solid that you get from a straight up extract. Um, and um, one of the, you know, they showed some examples of the of the uptake of the efficacy and things like that. 
and they really did have different properties. And so the judge was persuaded by that, that at least on that basis, it wasn't clear enough that it was a product of nature that, that he could throw out the case before even litigating it. But the point of this is that um, if, if the Pure Hemp Collective runs out of money or just decides that they don't wanna fight anymore, they're just worn out or whatever, and they fold, they, they decide to settle this case, that's not gonna be the end of it. They are, you know, United Cannabis will pick the next party to go after. A strategy, and I don't know this from knowing them, but I've been around patent litigation strategies enough to know that when you have a patent that has broad applicability, you pick one party to take to court, either because they're the, they're the infringer that's harming you the most, or because you think they're ones that would be likely to settle quickly. And you get, you, you put some points on the board, you get a victory, either a quick settlement or a win in litigation. And then you go to the rest of the world and you say, look, these guys settled with us or these guys lost and they took a license and you're next. So do you want to sign here on the dotted line and pay us some, some percentage of what you make? Or do you want to be the next, the next um, with your head on the chopping block? And the, the, the point here is that what United Cannabis or no, what Pure Hemp Collective is spending to defend this case, they're, if they're successful and they knock out this patent, they invalidate the patent, it can't be asserted against anybody after this. Now I'm being a little bit, there's a little bit of shorthand here and I'll be, uh, we've, I think we've got time for me to clarify that. When you invalidate a patent, you're not invalidating the whole patent unless you can show something like an equitable conduct or fraud. You have to invalidate it one claim at a time. But let's say, and they're only, some of the claims are under or being litigated, but whatever claims are the claims like to the to 95% CBD, if they are able to invalidate that and, and it isn't overturned on appeal, then that claim is gone forever. They can't sue anybody with that claim ever again. And so the, the idea is we got one party that's fighting a battle that will benefit the entire CBD industry, basically. And they're doing, they're paying for it all themselves. And yet if they win, everybody wins. If they lose, there's going to be a next victim up. And the only question is, who will it be? And so, you know, that this is kind of a preview. If, if you heard all this, you don't have to read my next blog or one of these upcoming blogs. But basically, it is uh, intended to be to explain to people that, that you know, if, if a patent gets invalidated or a patent claim gets invalidated, it can't be asserted against anyone else. So um, and if 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 it's successfully upheld or if there's a settlement or a license, it's definitely hunting season to pick the other victims. And so we really all have everybody who's in this industry and dealing with any kind of purified liquid, liquid formulations of cannabinoids has something to win or lose with the outcome of this case. And they really shouldn't be leaving it to one party to fight this battle and pay the freight. There really should be some kind of a, um, if possible, some kind of crowdfunding to help them put up the most vigorous defense. And in addition to the crowdfunding, bring your evidence. If you know that you've got something that pre, and I don't remember off the top of my head, the date of this patent, I think it was 2015, but it might be an earlier date. But if you've got something, some evidence of a liquid formulation containing a cannabinoid that was essentially pure or 95% pure of a given cannabinoid, whether it's CBG, CBN, CBD, THC, more likely CBD and THC, 
if you have that evidence and you can share it with them, it will strengthen their case and make it less likely that they'll have to settle and more likely that they could actually invalidate those claims, which means you will never be sued for that, for infringing those claims. And so you can save yourself a lot, a lot of time and hassle and effort just by kicking in your, your evidence and sharing it with this defendant. And um, up until now, I've talked in general terms about, about overbroad patents and about patent policy. And um, I've been careful not to take a position that this patent is invalid. This or that. Any, I always say, you know, if what people are say, if people, if what people say is true, then this would be the legal conclusion. And even in this case, I haven't done the analysis of these products. I haven't done the analysis of the dates or anything. But, but it is a fact that if people have evidence of that, that sharing that evidence could really change the landscape. And even just financially supporting these guys could really change the landscape. It could protect everyone. So I do want to advocate for that. So what are some of the other um, uh, things you've been working with in the, the cannabis legal space? You're always uh, doing lots of different things. You've been doing lots of different talks. And, and uh, I know you're working on trying to get some more standardized stuff out there. I know you're excited to talk about that. So. I am very excited to talk about it. There's something that we're doing. Um, we're trying to do a weekly, just push push the needle forward a little bit each week on um, something that has a, the current working name of the Ethical Data Alliance. Um, back, you, you know, you might know that I worked with Beth Schechter on the Open Cannabis Project, and then we dissolved that because of its its history and the, the way that it was kind of tainted by by phylos and we all needed to step away from that and but the goals of the open cannabis project were important and the open cannabis project actually had some value some some useful data that, that people should have access to since then though um, people have talked about wanting to make even more data available but not everybody wants to put their data totally into the public domain. And it's important to understand that if you put data into the public domain, that's, that's there just as much for, you know, Monsanto or Bayer or, or any of those big companies. Now they may not need it because they may have already have their own data, but public domain means anybody can have it. And so um, the ethical data Alliance, and I'm, you know, it's, it's too big to, to, to kind of encapsulate in just a few words, but the goal is to, have a safe, trustworthy, transparent, secure repository for anybody's data um, in the form of a nonprofit so that nobody's, nobody has to worry about mixed agendas, um, about you know, a, a for-profit that's hiding behind a nonprofit or anything like that. that it's, it's in the form of a nonprofit that would receive this data and let, let people decide, okay, I'm putting this in and I really do want everybody to have access to it. Go ahead and put it in the public domain. Someone else might say, I'm putting these data in for certain kinds of uses, maybe just for research use by universities and um, research institutions. Someone else might put their data in that they're willing to have it be used commercially as long as it's this kind of a company and as long as they get some, some claim to ownership of what comes from that. So a little slice of, of the goods that come from that. And there are lots of different ways of using data, a lot of different sources of it, a lot of different motives for sharing it. And we wanna build a structure that will let people put it in on their own terms, take it out on their own terms, not take it out, but use it on their own terms. And that it's more of a, an ethical exchange and 
to some extent a marketplace that let, that facilitates the use of it for the you know for maximum good and, and in the terms of, the, of whoever originated the data. But in addition to just genetic data, we're talking about um, phenotypic data, horticultural data, weather data, all kinds of things that can help someone you know look at and say, okay, I want to achieve X with my breeding program or whatever. And I need, it would really help me a lot, not just to have some genetic information, but to also have, know something about how that genetic inf information correlates with phenotype under these weather conditions, these horticultural conditions, and how big is my sample size. And that's the kind of thing that we wanna just make it so that, um, so that it's not just big ag and corporate cannabis that, and when I say corporate cannabis, I mean, any, any Anybody that's that's going to try to employ people and, and sell products has to eventually incorporate. But it's like the, you know the big corporations that are indifferent to, I think what we would consider to be the values of the community. Um, that we want to be able to provide a pool of all this great stuff, so that people who work on our side of the tracks can be effective in competing with or counterbalancing or doing something different and valuable. Um, as opposed to what I would call big cannabis or big ag. In addition to that, a lot of people have asked me about, um, you know, people have these tremendous collections of seeds or uh, genetic uh, material from, you know, land races or from something someone gave them or from things that they bred. And a lot of people, you know, some of these breeders are getting up there in years and they wanna leave a legacy. They want to, if, if they're not going to, um, be able to do everything they were hoping to do with their genetic collections. They at least want to put it in the hands of good people and have them carry it on or use it for breeding or, or whatever. And so people have asked me if, if I'd be willing to help them um, with some kind of a secure repository of their genetics. And that, that's really attractive to me, but I also realize that anytime things get centralized, there's, you know, this, this community has well-earned trust issues, not just with the feds, but with some, companies and, and you have to be sensitive to trust issues. And so my thinking is, and it's not just my thinking, but it's conversations that we've had, that it would be better instead of having one central repository of all these seeds and all this genetic information to have almost like a library system of decentralized repositories that would agree to play by certain rules and to, um, to, <clears throat> to meet certain standards so that people who have something valuable can put it in one of these places. They don't have to, since it's not centralized, you don't have quite as many trust issues. It's not as prone to abuse, um, but you've got groups that are all playing together, cooperating with each other. And like a library system, someone could say, okay, I want this, where is it? And then they could get it from any of these, from wherever it is. But it, there would also be an advantage to having it decentralized because some of these repositories at least could be um, concentrations of cultivars or seed stocks or whatever that have grown well in that location. Um, it wouldn't have to always be the case, but, but have some correlation between location and history, either, either um, uh, cultivation history or, or just history of, their pro of the provenance. There's a lot to be said for, and I, I think having multiple seed banks that, that um, cooperate with each other and they help each other out that, that nobody, no one person or company can control. So we're, we're, 
we're putting that also, the, the Ethical Data Alliance is working on a statement of ethics that people can see and see that it's committed to. It's trying to create a structure so that even if the Ethical Data Alliance itself is a nonprofit, the people who, who participate in it might be able to use it as a vehicle for getting, you know, if, if they put something in that's valuable and they make it accessible for commercial uses, that they can get some benefit from that instead of just donating it uh, to someone who wants to use it commercially. So I think in that way, we're, we're going to try to be a little bit um, broader in mission than Open Cannabis was, Open Cannabis Project was, but inspired by Open Cannabis Project. There are a lot of really good people in the industry that are involved in this, and we welcome involvement from more people. Um, uh, and we're going to be trying to put out some information so that so that we go from some wishes and some big goals to actual practical applications. We've got to set up the IT infrastructure. First of all, we've got to set up the ethical statement and the structure for the, for the nonprofit. But then we've got to set up the IT infrastructure and the repository um, system. And there's a lot of work to be done. And, but it's, it's an important cause. It's a way that, that people can stay local, stay um, not necessarily small, but not have to sell out to, to the big ag and big investment interests and still be competitive in terms of their access to good genetics and good data. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I'm really excited about. Um, one other thing that we're working on is um, some model legislation to uh, what we've seen, and, and, and this came up in Hawaii, but it's not at all unique to Hawaii. There are some uh, situations where as cannabis goes from being completely illegal to being available for medicinal uses, and then even for um, adult use or recreational purposes, that the entire um, market and the entire price structure gets out of whack with heavy taxes and big business coming in. And sometimes it really limits um, the access that certain patients have to it. And so one of the things we're trying to do, starting in Hawaii, but, but spreading to um, other states, is to write some really simple, really focused legislation that will define a certain class of patients and then a certain class of grower cult type, a type of a co-op or growers that, that are creating the, the, the medicines for the benefit of these patients. And that if people qualify either as a grower co-op or as a patient, they're in a totally different economy, that they, are, they have a different tax burden, a different regulatory burden, and that that, that is, um, it's, it, it's meant to just cut away all of the obstacles to getting good medicines to patients in need without interfering with, you know, the bigger economies. I mean, this cannabis economy is, is kind of scary in terms of how it's growing and who's coming into it, but it really is also creating a lot of jobs and it's going to change the world. And so we can't fight against it, but we do want to carve out a piece to, to benefit patients that aren't really participating in some boom economy and, and the growers that want to support that. So those are a couple of the nonprofits that we're working on right now. Yeah, we just had, um, uh, Ian Kelson on from California to talk about SB 34, um, which is, is very similar in mission to what you were just talking about. Yeah, I think, I think it's something that could work in every state um, because 
States that already have a, a vibrant economy still need that carve out. Their, their vibrant economy still is going to be, they might be pricing people, people out of receiving good medicines and they might be pricing certain growers with those priorities out of competing. Um, likewise, in states where it's totally illegal now, what better place to start with legalization than with those kinds of patients and those kinds of growers? So, you know, we've got big goals and we're hoping to make that um, uh, something that could either sit on top of existing legislation or that could be the first legislation passed in the state, either by referendum or, or by legislatures. So fingers crossed. Really, really, really awesome. Uh, you know, it's badly needed out there. And uh, I know you've talked about it once or twice, but it's nice, nice to hear that it's really, really getting going and, and that, that uh, you've got a lot of momentum behind it and a lot of support. So it's really wonderful to hear. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of people who are putting a lot of energy into this. And my experience, especially with volunteer organizations, when you're not out there to make money and you're not getting paid for it, is um, identify the goals, boil it down to some specific tasks, chop it up into little pieces a lot of people can do. Volunteers can drop in, do a part of it, drop back out to, to live their life. And that if we can do that, if we can create the right structures to do that, we can get a lot done because there are a lot of good people that want to help. They just have to be able to find a way to, that a lot of people can pull a little bit all in the same direction and accomplish big things. Absolutely. So what do you, how do you see uh, the legislation? Oh, uh, I guess we had a, another question from Chad a little bit earlier before we got disconnected and I wanted to bring it up. So there, there's this, um, a possibility of, of descheduling tomorrow or the first part of the vote in Congress goes through tomorrow. Uh, are you aware of this? <laughs> That's news to me. I've been a little, a little wrapped up in some other things lately, but that would be great. Um, there was a new thing proposed just a couple of days ago. Hold on. I'll pull it up because it was one of the most commented things we had on. Um... Oh shoot. I meant to pull it up beforehand. I just thought it'd be easier to Google. Give me three seconds here. While but you're working on that, I'll, it, while you're looking for it, I'll just comment generally. I've heard some really exciting things about um, about one kind of federal legislation or another, but my sense is that, you know, whether it's banking or whether it's um, some other advance in the industry, that it seems to get a lot of traction in one House of Congress, but not in the other. I think it usually doesn't have as much as much traction in the Senate. And since things have to pass both houses and then get signed, um, we get, I think we get a lot of encouraging early reports that don't turn out to deliver, but I really would love to have this be different. That would be fantastic. I'm trying to find, it was a Forbes article. Two seconds here. I apologize. No problem. Here it is. Oh, this one says, sorry, it's probably only, where is it? Three days ago. Yeah, uh, Fed's plan, uh, they're gonna propose, or proposing it to remove it from the Controlled Substance Act, the House Judiciary Committee Chairman. So it's gonna go through committee tomorrow. Yeah, well, that would be a great step. And you know, even if it is just in the House and not in the Senate, that's kind of what happened with other kinds of legislation that they got some momentum in one house and then they just got relaunched the next session. And it's still, you know, 
could be an election away from shifting the balance in, in the Senate and uh, things could change. Or just even the same senators might get a different message from their constituents in the next election and, and decide they need to take a different view of, the, of things. So I, I'm kind of an optimist by nature and I'm really hoping that we can get that done. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, uh, you know, it it's called the Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act, or the MORE Act. For those definitely in favor of definitely in favor of expungement. I'm glad they're doing some social equity uh, stuff as part of that. That's important. Oh, it's critical for any kind of bill like that. Um, yeah. But it was something that. Um, a lot of people were asking about in chat. Um, so, uh, you know, my my theory on this, and I'd love to hear your your opinion on it, is that there's no way that they're not going to put forth some kind of um, probably medical legalization bill for descheduling it before the next presidential election, so the Republicans can remove it as a wedge issue uh, for Democrats because it turns out the youth vote, and it makes a lot of sense for them to do that. Uh, something that they can do give big business, their, their friends, you know, John Boehner is, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, really involved in the industry now, which is funny. His daughter's married to the, uh, high up, high up in, uh, in the Rastafarian church, which is really funny, <laughs> but, um, funny, funny world we live in, but, um, it is. but that was my theory on that. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Or what, where do you think cannabis legalization is going in the next, you know, six to 12 months? Um, obviously nobody knows for sure, but you know, what, where do you think are going to be the big issues going into next year? Well, I'm definitely no expert on this, but it does seem to me that um, there's so much momentum. And I think some people in the, in, you know, in, in power in the U.S. look around and say, and they don't want to be left behind by the rest of the world. And, you know, Canada was, was um, one, one example, but other countries are getting on board. And um, I think when, uh, whatever someone's motives are, when there's an industry that's taking off, U.S. leaders want to be at the forefront of that industry, or at least they want their piece of the pie. So I don't think that we're going to be um, federally illegal for much longer. But um, I think one thing I learned from working with some local politicians to try to get um, you know, different cities in California to uh, grant some more licenses and everything is that if you've got a city council with five people on it, you have five different agendas and you just have to find three of them that you can make point in the same direction for a moment so that they'll, they'll vote the same way. But, you know, if you've got all these different senators and, and Congress people, they all, every one of them has a different agenda. Well, they're made, they all have the same agenda, right? They want to get reelected. And I think most of them really do want to do something good for their district. But, um, and my sense, my optimism about federal legalization comes from the fact that there are so many of these districts that are already um, experiencing the benefits of the cannabis industry but they're experiencing the, the, the downside of, the, the, they're, they're feeling the friction from federal um, illegality that there are individual congressional districts and, and Senate seats that, that see the importance to their own state of removing the federal uh, obstacles. And then one other thing I've heard people talk about, and I'm pretty opinionated about this, but you know, I could be 
wrong about this too. People are afraid that um, with federal legalization, the FDA is going to just jump in and try to control it all. And the reason, and certainly the FDA shows the propensity to do that kind of thing. Um, and every, you know, every agency, every judge, every, every politician, they all see what they see. They call it public service or whatever, but they, it's all power. Um, sometimes it can be power with very good intentions, but it's still all power. And so an agency that has an opportunity to grab more power will, if they can. But the reason that I'm not too worried about the FDA controlling all of it is because that would put a serious, um, a serious chill on a lot of existing industries in a lot of different states. And the FDA can't do things without congressional approval. It can do a rulemaking, like we talked about at the very beginning of this. They can do a rulemaking under the APA, but their rulemaking can always be overridden by new legislation. And so my sense is that if the FDA tries a massive power grab and to say, we're in charge of every cannabinoid in every form, um, whether it's whole plant, whether it's an isolated uh, cannabinoid or whatever, that would mess up so many businesses and so many industries and so many states that you'd have a large number of people in the House of Representatives and in the Senate that would say, no way are you gonna mess up my district in that way by shutting down all these businesses that are already thriving and that are already bringing taxes into, into the economies there. So I think if the FDA ever does make that power grab, there are gonna be enough individual politicians who's whose agendas, all disparate agendas align in that one way to say, nope, not going to let you do it. That's my optimism anyway. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, is there any other uh, uh, court cases that might set case law on the horizon? You had mentioned the one about, uh, you know, the one that's in litigation right now in Colorado, but is there any others that look like they're going to rev up here before too long that might people need to keep an eye on? There aren't any that I know of, and I'm actually waiting for the other shoe to drop. And maybe, you know, I think if it had already dropped, I would have heard, but um, it's hard to know uh, what else will happen out there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I hope that by the time something like that does happen, that we can have a coalition that, uh, that counterbalances that. And, um, you know, there's some other things I'm working on that will, that will hopefully be ready if that ever does happen. Awesome. Well, is there any other uh, topics you wanted to go over before I let you go? I guess there's just one more. It's one that I've been excited about for a long time, and um, it's something I've been working on for, for a while. And um, I'll talk about it in general terms still, because I don't think we're ready for an official announcement. But I have believed, well, I've talked with a lot of plant breeders that um, are passionate about, about breeding the plant. They have some special, you know, lifelong goal they've been working on, you know, a particular kind of chemotype or a particular expression of a particular cannabinoid or something. And there are a lot of these plant breeders that are not, they're so passionate about breeding the plant. That's their talent. That's their, that's their life effort. That's their focus. They're not especially inclined to be entrepreneurs themselves, or they don't have access to that. You know, some, some of the, some plant breeders are also really good business people and they're already doing fine. But one of my causes and one of my goals has been to find a way that individual plant breeders that aren't, don't have access to investment money or just don't want to be business people can still really bring their life's work to the public. And um, I've had this idea that um, we need an economy 
we need an industry that treats plant breeders kind of like artists, like, like recording artists, like songwriters or performers. And that if they have enough talent in plant breeding, somebody else steps up and protects what they, helps them protect what they've done, pays them a royalty for their work, and then goes out and commercializes that. And it's something I've talked about at a couple of meetings. Um, for a lot of people, it strikes them as so different from what they've heard before that they're like, uh, it's not gonna work. But then I've had a few people come back to me and say, actually, that's kind of cool. That's a kind of a good idea. So that is something that I'm working on. Um, I think there's so much talent out there in plant breeding and there's so much, you know, so many great things just sitting in somebody's greenhouse or, you know, seeds that somebody has on their shelf that, that um, uh, it shouldn't be only those, those few plant breeders that also are good business people that, you know, that, that are the only ones that, that have access to the market. So we're working on some ways of, of, um, making it easier for plant breeders to succeed by getting help from other people who are good at other things. And um, I'll have a more formal announcement, announce, announcement about that pretty soon, but I'm excited about it. I think that um, we've got too much great genetics and talent out there and passion to just let it sit on the sidelines. And that's really awesome. It sounds like a great way for people to kind of, you know, license their, their genetics out. And, and do you want to talk maybe for a second on, on why licensing might be the best option for a lot of people? Because a lot of people aren't familiar with that concept. Yeah, um, I've worked my whole career with, um, with plant breeders, but, you know, up until the cannabis industry, it was, it was fruit companies and flower companies, and they would breed all kinds of great things. But even if it's a big company, you know, you you're not going to be able to, maybe, maybe there are, you've got a, a, an amazing grape or plum that people want to grow in 30 different countries. You're not going to set up a business in all 30 of those countries, but you want it to get out there. You want people to enjoy the, the work that you've done and you want to be able to make some money on it in these different economies. And so that's why intellectual property, that's the role of, of, I think, appropriate patents, the patents that aren't overbroad and that aren't trying to protect something that somebody else created or that has been around forever. If you have a patent or some form of intellectual property that just protects the work that somebody really originally did, almost like a copyright. You know, people don't have any problems with copyrights on movies and books and, and, and art. Um, I think we should, the same way we should be, be happy to help to, to see creative plant breeders protect their work. But so if you, if you protect it, and then if you have the adequate protection, then you can do license agreements so that you give someone permission to work under your IP, under your intellectual property, to work in a different country, let's say, all right, you can grow, you can go grow my stuff in Mexico or Colombia or South Africa or Australia or Canada or wherever. And um, I want it to hit those markets. I don't have the resources to build up a worldwide infrastructure to grow this stuff or to distribute it. So I'm going to give you permission to use my genetics um, as long as we can structure it in such a way that there's high security around it, that it's not just going to leak out carelessly. Um, and that the royalties, the, the, the value that this creates is shared fairly between the people who are doing the work and the people who did the work upstream to make this possible. Um, so I've, I've done that my whole career with other companies and I've seen some, some companies um, that were really good at propagating plants 
get to the point that their their international business of just licensing out their IP is even more valuable than all the plants they could ever propagate. And it's depending on someone's goals, you know, some their their goals might be to make a lot of money or it might just be, hey, I've got something special. I want the world to enjoy it and appreciate it. Or I want to create jobs all around the world or I I want to leave a legacy or whatever. So there are a lot of reasons that someone might want to do that, even if they're not all about money, but everybody's got to make some money to pay the bills and to live on. And I think people who've been doing this for decades to make special cultivars, um, they ought to get paid for their life's work. So um, not everybody is in a position to start a business, certainly not an international business. Not everybody's in a position to get all the licenses they need to, to uh, propagate and cultivate and extract and distribute. Um, but if you're a breeder and you got something special, you don't need all those licenses. You, you do, those are regulatory licenses. You just need to protect your IP and then um, license out the rights for other people to, uh, to use your genetics and um, make good products and, and uh, sell it around the world and write you checks. Now, um, is there any reason why someone would want to go after um, a, uh, a cultivar protection uh, or is that, you know, generally, I know those usually are, take longer than the, the patents. Is that something anyone's doing right now in the realm? I know that, you know, more, you know, do a lot of work with the patent stuff. Is that something people are considering at all or, or not really for cannabis? Yeah. Um, well, cultivar protection can mean a few different things. Um, it really does just mean in a, in a, in a really literal sense, it means, you know, a cultivar is one particular stable genetic line, whether it's propagated clonally, in which case it's, it's one unique genotype, or it can be a stable seed line, and that can still be considered a cultivar. In the U.S., if you're doing clonal propagation, your options are either a plant patent, which is like a copyright on a plant, um, plant genotype, or you can have a utility patent that protects um, that genotype, whether it's used clonally or used as a parent to make seeds or in a breeding program or whatever. So, but in the rest of the world, there's one system that's called UPOV, which is an acronym for a French or a French um, organization whose name, or well, a French name of an organ of an international organization that translates roughly to the International Convention for Protection of Plant Varieties. But under UPOV, um, you can protect cultivars in something like 75 different countries. You have to file in each, each country, so people don't usually, well, nobody files in all 75, but if you have some countries you, wanna, you want to commercialize in, you can protect your cultivar through UPOV in any of these countries, um, or almost any of them, or a few that, that wouldn't be as, as sold available for cannabis. But, but in general, most of these countries will accept, uh, will, will offer protection on any kind of plant as long as it meets the requirements for protection. And then um, you basically just pick where, where you want to where you want to um, commercialize. The other really nice thing about UPOV is that in contrast to the deadlines that exist in the US under the patent system, in UPOV, you have four years to file an application, four years after the first date of commercialization anywhere or one year after you've commercialized locally. So let's say I've commercialized in Australia, I need to file my application there within a year of when I commercialize there. Um, but if I've only commercialized in the US and I wanna protect it all the rest of, around the rest of the world, I got four years for any of my other applications. So 
the, the dates and deadlines are a little complicated. You gotta, you gotta make sure you understand them and, and even the meaning of commercialization can vary from one country to another. So it is good to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing about that, but you're not in quite as much time pressure to get your protection, but if you see some prospects, um, you can get the protection. And the cost is, you know, you, you wouldn't want to just protect everything. You've got to make sure that it, that it has some value behind it. It's good to have an investor to help you with that or something. But the cost is, um, is if you have something that is valuable in a bunch of different countries, the cost is, is a relatively small part of the proposition. So it's, a, it's reasonably accessible and not too complicated to obtain. Usually you've um, in a lot of these countries, they actually do a test grow to make sure that the, the crop looks like you say it will look. Um, so sometimes it can take two or three years to get the rights because they have to do the test grow. But um, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of value in it. If you have something that's gonna be valuable all around the world or even just in a few countries, you definitely should, um, should consider that. Awesome. Well, uh, I don't want to tie up your entire evening. Um, uh, do you have anything you wanted to mention in closing? Uh, you want to mention your your law firm if people need uh, need help and uh, you know other other ways they can uh, help sure. you out if they want to volunteer. Yeah. So um, my law firm is uh, actually I'm wearing my uniform here. It's Plant and Planet Law Firm. That's my logo there. Um, Plantandplanet.com, um, and uh, you can. Send me an email there, um, dhunt, D-H-U-N-T at Plant and Planet, or just info, I think. I think that works at Plant and Planet. Or you can find my blog, which is plantlaw.com. And I think there's a way to get a hold of this through the blog. But yeah, we're happy to help people. We want to help. Um, and uh, if you want to get involved in one of these uh, nonprofits, um, send me an email and uh, um, really good to copy my uh, our firm administrator she's she makes sure things don't slip through the cracks if we get busy so um, her email is um, m godfrey g-o-d-f-r-e-y she's famous now she's gonna love this so molly godfrey is our firm administrator you can send an email to me and copy her and we'll make sure that we get back in touch about how to get involved or how to protect your ip or you know whatever else you want to talk about Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and answer our questions. And uh, I feel like you're almost like a resident lawyer we need to we run to and we have cannabis questions for the show. And I appreciate all the all the wonderful information you put out there. Again, none of not nothing he said was was law advice. I think he, he, he started off with that, but we'll, we'll preface it or end it with that too. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I, I, I love being on on your uh, podcast and I like helping people. And um, I just, I feel really lucky to be involved in this industry and especially working with the people on, you know, I guess I think of it as our side of the tracks and the, the, the people who've been, who fought the wars and are, are trying to do it right. I really feel lucky to be affiliated with people like that. Well, we appreciate all that you do and the time that you take to, uh, to share with us and make sure we have the right answers and that we're not being misled and, uh, you know, we're not just, uh, uh, making decisions based on Facebook posts and other goofy things that people do and Instagrams and uh, and other goofy things that, that end up causing all kinds of issues. So I wonder, uh, you know, thanks again for taking the time and uh, I really appreciate it. It's my genuine pleasure and uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. 
it was really wonderful to have uh, have Dale on, and um, I will uh, uh, have some uh, some other stuff going on. So um, just wanted to say thanks again for Dale. Uh, check him out at plantandplanet.com. Uh, and if you're looking for anything, especially if you need help with contracts or legislation stuff or anything, really, he's he's a great guy to go to and uh, uh, friends with a lot of people on the on the show. Um, I wanted to mention quick thing. Um, True Aquaponics and I will be launching our, our nutrient stuff here soon. Uh, I don't think it's live yet, but it will be hopefully going live this week or next week. So super excited on that. Uh, Marty and I are finalizing some classes and some class dates for next year uh, so that you guys have some some dates before Christmas for, for our next online class. And I think we're going to do all the classes at least for a little while online. Uh, just because of logistics with me being on a different continent and all, it's going to be a lot easier. Plus, it'll be really cool to give you guys uh, information and show you guys uh, grows on two different places on radically different scales. So it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. So we'll have those dates up here soon. And um, yeah, other than that, just chugging away and, and getting work done. So I really appreciate everybody taking the time to join us this evening. And we'll be back again on Thursday. Um, hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll have Murray Hollum next Tuesday. Uh, we're, we're just coordinating on uh, on times and schedules, but it looks like he'll be he'll be our guest for next Tuesday. And uh, I don't have our guest. Um, I don't remember who it is for Thursday, but it's so, somebody fun. So we'll, we'll be back again on Thursday. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll see you guys again soon. Cheers. <laughs>